Well, uh, this is our second week in the book of Judges. If you're just joining us, uh, thanks. We're glad you're here. And if you're back, we're glad you came back. Uh, The book of Judges is an interesting book, and I've been trying to tell uh, as many of the stories as are appropriate uh, to my kids as I can. And I was thinking, you know what, I I should open up the Jesus Storybook Bible because it's my favorite kind of kid's story Bible. Here's a picture of it. The the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name, and I love how it just kind of all points to Jesus. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to open the Jesus Storybook Bible and read some of the stories from Judges. And there aren't any. <laughs> there are no stories from Judges in the, the book. It, it like goes from Joshua to King David. It just skips this whole part. And uh, the, the stories we're going to look at today are a good reason why. Uh, today, at the very least, is PG-13. Uh, in terms of the content of this passage, uh, it's violent. It might even be rated R, depending on your kind of sensibilities. So I just want to give you a heads up on that. If you have kids in here that you don't think you want to have read about some pretty violent things, um, this would be a great time for you to take them and check them into Redemption Kids and then come back and join us yourself. But just a a heads up if you want to do that. Uh, So it's PG-13, maybe rated R. Another big question with it is what category this falls in. Would this be a drama? That's kind of what you might think initially, but it it also maybe could be a, a comedy, There's going to be parts of this story that we're going to look at today that are funny. And and so if you were kind of nominating it for a for a category, right? You, you go, what, what is this? It's sort of like The Martian. Any of you seen The Martian? Uh, that movie that uh, just came out a few months ago. And it, it, was, it won the Golden Globe for best comedy. And if you've seen it, you're like, that's not a comedy, right? But they didn't have another category to put it in. So that's where they put it. And that's a little bit how this is. Is this a comedy? Is this drama? Is this horror? What is this? Uh, And so we'll get into it in just a moment, but before we do, I want to just do some review for those of you who are just joining us, um, and really for all of us to make sure we have the big ideas in our heads here. The key verse of the book of Judges is in chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 25, and here's what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is kind of the summary verse. This describes everything that we read in the book. In fact, this is the very last verse of the book. If you just want to kind of go, what was that all about? It's about this. There's no king. They aren't living with God as king. And everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Now, we said last week, that sounds a lot like our culture. Sounds a lot like today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Now, the way we say it is, I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. No one should tell me what to do. It's a free country. I can do what I want to do, right? That's everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And what you see in this book is the disaster that ensues when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And especially what happens to the people of God when they adopt that mindset. When they adopt that mindset, rather than the nations around them becoming more holy and more righteous and more committed to God, the people of God actually become more and more worldly. They become more idolatrous. They begin to give their allegiance and their heart and their affection to gods other than the one true God. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now last week we introduced to you a cycle that you see throughout this book. It's really kind of a downward spiral of sorts. Uh, But what the whole book is doing is it's showing you all these situations when Israel experiences this cycle. And here's kind of how we explained it, is that it starts, the first thing is sin. It'll say the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They sin. And, and what we saw last week was that that sin was going after other gods. 
there were all these local deities that particularly were important to the people for farming and for crops and for economic strength. And so the people rarely just totally abandoned God. Often they would kind of integrate this false worship with their worship of God. They would kind of hedge their bets, if you will, and say, well, I need my crops to grow, so I'll, I'll worship the God Baal a little bit. And, and so they would do evil. They would sin. That's the first step. The second step is servitude. Because of their sin, God would bring into their lives oppression. These other groups of people would conquer them and would rule over them for a period of time, and that would be painful. And because of that pain, the third thing is uh, supplication. They would cry out, that's what that means. They would ask for help, oh God, we don't want this. Now, now this is important, we'll see more and more as the book goes. Rarely are they crying out to God because they're so sorry for their sin. They're usually crying out because they don't like the pain of their circumstances. There's a big difference. We'll talk about that more as we go, but just pay attention for that. So they cry out, and even though they're not all that repentant, even though they're not all that sorry, the fourth element is salvation. God sends a rescuer. God sends a deliverer, and he rescues them, and while that deliverer is alive, you have the fifth thing. You have silence. You have Sabbath. You have rest. The land has rest is how the text describes it. So over and over throughout this book, we're going to see that cycle happen over and over. And we're going to see that actually two different cycles today in uh, Judges 3, 4, and 5. Now we'll look at the text here in just a moment. One last thing before we do, uh, because there is so much content uh, that we could look at, uh, well, first of all, I hope you read this. Like you will help me and help yourself a lot if if before you come here, if you could read these passages. And we actually have on your program, we have the neck on the back of it, there's, you know, it talks about our series and it tells you what passages we're gonna look at in the next few weeks. So if you can be reading ahead on those, it will just help you understand it better. Uh, but if you want kind of bonus stuff, there's, there's gonna be things that I am not gonna be able to include in each message, but kind of interesting stuff or answers to questions. Uh, here's a website that you can go to if you would like to uh, subscribe to receive that by email, tinyurl.com slash judges series and uh, if you're interested there you can check that out all right so we're going to see two of these cycles uh, the first one involving a lefty and the second one involving women and we pick it up in judges chapter 3 verse 12 judges chapter 3 verse 12 uh, gives us the beginnings of the cycle it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's your sin. Now here's the servitude. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice, this will be important later, the Lord did this. The Lord strengthened the opposing king to come in and take over Israel. This is the Lord's doing to bring about this servitude. So you have sin, servitude. Uh, verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, that's the city of Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, that's supplication. Here's salvation. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? All right, how many of you are left-handed? Raise them, raise them high. Raise your left hand if you're left-handed. I mean, 
No, you're, you're good. So some of you are left-handed. My mom is left-handed, and so I grew up my whole life with my dad telling me that left-handed people had their brains put in backwards. And I don't know if he, if he believed that before or after they got married. I don't know, but, but that's what he would say. And in this particular culture, left-handedness is... Uh, it's not a bad thing, it's just kind of an unusual thing. It's sort of a rare thing. Uh, so much so that the text points it out and it actually will become important as the story goes on. It's sort of an unlikely or an unusual sort of thing, especially because Ehud's name means son of the right hand. <laughs> kind of interesting. So a left-handed son of the right hand is this person that it says, again, verse 15, the Lord raised up. Uh, well, it continues in verse 15. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, this tribute probably would have been produce, uh, would have been food, uh, those sorts of things. Verse 16, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, a cubit, uh, look up here for a second, a cubit is from the tips of your fingers to your elbow, right? So this is kind of a dagger, kind of a short sort of sword, uh, and uh, it says that he put it on his right leg. Why? Why would he do that? Because he's a left-handed man, right? To reach, he would get it. And often when people would search somebody who was going to approach the king, we don't get this. We would we do the whole body, right? But they would just, okay, you're left, right? If you don't have a sword there, we're good. Come on in. And so Ehud, this lefty who's made this sword, is going to give tribute to King Eglon says verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. One translation says grossly obese. <laughs> My kids liked that part. <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, right? These wealthy kings would have this place up, up above to be able to cool off this roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And this gets the king, you know, big bulky king out of his seat. He arose. Verse 21. In verse 21, the author goes into like slow motion, all right? And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. <laughs> right, I love just hearing all your reactions. Some of you are like, ooh, and some of you are like, ha ha ha, and some of you are like, yeah, right? Like, this is the perfect story. Like, I wish you were all in junior high. This would just be a delight to preach this story to you. And there is a sense in which it's funny, right? If you put yourself in some Israelite sandals, you're like, ha, 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 you oppressed us. Take that, big fat king. You know, Josh Watts said his little boy called him big fat king eggnog. Take that, you know. <laughs> and so the dung comes out. I don't know exactly how that works, but that's an image. Verse 23 then Ehud went out to the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked the roof. So he drags big fat eggnog out to the thing, locks the door, 
says, verse 24, when they had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, right? The, get this? Eglon's attendants come back. Where is he? Where is he? Oh, you smell that? Remember the dung had come out. He must be going to the bathroom. So they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. That's how some of you feel right now. Can you believe we're talking, are we allowed to talk about this in church? But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and they, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. The rest of the passage continues that Ehud escaped and uh, 10,000 uh, Moabites were killed and it's just this incredible victory for Israel. And it says, verse 30, uh, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And then here's the fifth part of that cycle and the land had rest for 80 years, right? So you had the sin, they did evil, the servitude, God gave them to Eglon, the, uh, the supplication, God help, the salvation, Ehud delivers, and then the rest, the land had rest for 80 years. Verse 31 gives kind of a, a summary, a minor sort of judge. We don't know much about him other than he was kind of quite a warrior, killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is kind of a farming tool. And then that takes us to chapters four and five. Now, so that's, that's again, just one more cycle. We'll come back at the end of all this and go, what are we supposed to get from all this, okay? But for now, that's that first cycle. God using this unexpected left-handed Ehud to save the Israelites out of the Moabite oppression, all right? Now, chapters four and five, chapter four is kind of the story form. Chapter five is the song form. So after the story happens, chapter five is written to celebrate God's rescue, to celebrate God's deliverance. And so that's a little bit of how that works. Um, just for the sake of, uh, partly for time and partly because there's so many names and uh, geography and things that to try to go through it real fast is challenging. So I'm just gonna tell you uh, the story, but I'll set it up maybe by reading verses uh, one to three of chapter four. So here's the next cycle. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, sin, after evil died. Verse two, here's your servitude. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So there you have the first three elements of the cycle, right? You have the sin, you have God uh, selling them into the hand of this opposing king, that's the servitude. Then you have the supplication, they cry out for help, right? They're 900 chariots of iron. This is the top notch, most expensive, most technologically advanced weaponry of this day. This is a strong army. Sisera is the commander, he's the leader, right? All of us have seen different countries where there's a, there's a political figure, but the real leader is the, the general. The real leader is the commander. That's how it is in this particular situation. Sisera is the real enemy. When the midst of that, we're introduced to Deborah. Verse four tells us that Deborah is a prophetess. Now that's kind of interesting because most of the prophets in the Old Testament were men. It's kind of a rare thing for there to be a female prophet, not unheard of, she's not the only one, but, but this is kind of a rare thing. She's a prophetess, and it says that she would sit under a tree and she would judge Israel. People would come to her for kind of, uh, hey, would you help resolve this dispute? Would you speak wisdom into this? Would you kind of do this? So Deborah is this, this leader figure in Israel. 
Now, what's interesting in this whole story is we have the sin, we have the servitude, we have the supplication, but, but who's gonna be responsible for the salvation? That's gonna be one of the big questions here. Is it gonna be Deborah? Because it doesn't say the Lord raised up Deborah to deliver the people, it doesn't say that. But it does say Deborah was this prophetess. Well, she, uh, she has this, uh, this other sort of commander, this other general, a guy named Barak. And so she calls him and she says, hey, Barak, hey, God is giving Sisera into our hands. You need to go up and you need to fight him. You need to go up on this mountain. He's gonna square off and God is gonna give you into his hands or give him into your hands, I'm sorry. It says, uh, verse seven, this is God speaking. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops and I will give him into your hand. Well, now Barak responds really interestingly, right? The, the prophetess speaking the word of the Lord says, God's gonna help you win go. He says, well, I'll go if you come with me. If you don't come, I'm not going. We've seen a few times uh, at the beginning of the book, the people had said, God, who should go fight against the Canaanites? God said, Judah. Judah said, well, hey, I need help. Someone else come with me. Kind of this half-hearted thing. And that's a little bit how Barak is. So is Barak going to be the deliverer? I don't know. So he says, well, Deborah, I'll only come if you come. And Deborah says, okay, well, I'll come. But listen, just so you know, uh, because of this response, uh, you're going to still, you know, we're still going to win, but the glory for this battle is going to go to a woman. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So everything gets set up. Everything gets prepared. Um, there's, uh, there's, you know, they're, they're preparing for all this stuff. And in verse 11, we get this sort of random interjection, this, this zoom away from the main story that doesn't seem to have to do with as much, which tells us about a guy who is a descendant of Moses' father-in-law who was, had, had set up this camp kind of nearby where this battle was going to be. So then the battle happens, uh, th they go and they fight, and it says in verse 14, uh, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands, and in verse 15 it says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So, they so Barak, despite his hesitation, despite his uncertainty, experiences God giving this huge routing victory. They destroy Sisera, they destroy, uh, not, not Sisera himself, but the army. They destroy the 900 chariots. They're all dead, but then we're told in verse 17 that Sisera got away. This commander is still alive, and so he flees on foot the opposite direction. And this is where we need to start reading. It's verse 17. But Sisera, Sisera fled away to, on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So he's going, oh, this will be a friendly place to go. Verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. I'll take care of you, she's saying. Come on in. We're friendly. We're good. Come on in. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. And then again, the author zooms into slow motion. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. 
In case you weren't sure, it then says, so he died. And then Barak is chasing and she, you know, he, he comes over and Jael says, hey, 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 the guy you're looking for is in here. And he comes in and he sees him. And in fact, the Lord does deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. We thought it was going to be Deborah. It turns out it's Jael. So you have, was Deborah the, is Deborah the deliverer? Is Barak the deliverer? Is Jael the deliverer? It's not exactly sure. And then in chapter five, again, you have this uh, celebration, this just recounting of what happened, but in poetry form. And we're told at the very end in chapter five, verse 31, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. What do we learn from all that? And and particularly in that second story, who's the deliverer? Right, the author has gone out of his way to show us this cycle. We saw it with Othniel, all five things. We saw it with Ehud, all five things. And then we get to this story and it's like he left out the fourth thing, right? There's always been a place where it said, and the Lord raised up so-and-so, to, to deliver the, the nation. That's not here, right? We have the sin, we have the servitude, we have the supplication, we have the silence, but we're missing, we, we have the salvation, but we don't know who, who gets the credit for this. Who's the deliverer? And that leads us to the main thing that we've got to get out of this passage. It's the big E on the eye chart. The thing you have to see is that God saves. God is the deliverer. God is the rescuer. And I think that the author of Judges puts it this way uh, for, for real important reasons. One is, when you read the story of Ehud, you might tend to think, oh, what we really need are crafty, uh, thoughtful, courageous, uh, creative people to go and to be our deliverers. That's what we really need. What we really need is a king like Ehud. Because Ehud was clever and he was crafty and he used that kind of interesting uh, oddity to his advantage. So that's on, that's on one side of the story. On the other side, what we're going to see in the next couple weeks is the story of Gideon. And Gideon is constantly confused, thinking that he's the one that's responsible for Israel's deliverance. And he's going to actually try to steal the glory from God and take some of the credit for what happens. And so here you have sandwiched in between those stories, you have this story where it isn't clear who's the deliverer. Why? Because God's saying, I'm the deliverer. I am. As you read all these stories and you see all these people that are used, don't miss it. I'm the one saving. And I'll use Ehud and I'll use Deborah and Barak and Jael and I'll use Gideon and I'll use all these people, but I'm the one doing it. Just just briefly to go back into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. This is the Lord. I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. Verse nine, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Verse 14, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera. Verse 23, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. God saves. That's what God does. And if there's anything that we need to see in this book of Judges is that what we need is not more intelligent human ingenuity. We need God to show up. That's what we need. 
When, when the, that theme verse says, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in there, the, the answer is not, well, we need a crafty human king. The answer is, we need God as king, because God saves. Well, how does God save? And are there some ways that God saves here and in this book that might actually connect to our lives, that might connect to how God saves and rescues us, and, and not just saves us eternally, like saving us from our sins, though he does that, but saving us from our troubles and saving us from our pain and saving us from our difficulties and saving us from ourselves. Are there some things God does in his saving that we can learn? Well, there are. There's four things. Here's the first thing, is that God saves by allowing us to feel the pain of our rebellion. The text goes out of its way to say that the Lord is the one who caused the servitude. Chapter three, verse 12. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Chapter four, verse two. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jamin. Why would God do this? Why would God be the one saying, I'm gonna make your life painful? That's what he's doing, why? Well, because how do you get from sin, I'm doing what I want, I'm doing what's right in my own eyes, I don't need you, God. How do you get from there to, God, I need you, please help? How do you get there? How do you get there? Pain. Pain is how you get there. Difficulty, suffering, crisis. Now, now listen. I'm not saying, hear me clearly, I am not saying that all pain and all suffering and all difficulty in your life is the direct thing that God's doing to try to rid some sin in your life. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there are times when God allows us to experience the pain just as the natural consequences of our sin. He does that. And he does that as a first step in saving us. He does that because he loves us. The scripture tells us in Hebrews that God disciplines the children he loves. Just like you do, you love your kid, you discipline. Here's how C.S. Lewis said it. He was a British philosopher and author. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts in pain. So when you're in pain and you're in difficulty, one question to ask is, Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this? What are you trying to help me with this? I'm not gonna assume, God, that you're against me. I'm not gonna assume, God, that you've left me. I'm actually gonna assume that because of this pain, you're here with me. And you have something to shape in me. What is it, God? If God didn't let us experience pain, there's so much that would go wrong that we'd never know. Right, here's a picture of Ashlyn Blocker. She's a teenage girl who has a very rare disease called congenital insensitivity to pain. What that means is she can't feel pain physically. Uh, her parents figured something was up when as an infant she never cried. Right, some of you are like, oh Lord, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome till you take your eight month old and she has a cornea abrasion and they say she should be screaming her lungs out and she doesn't feel it. It's not something you want when your six-year-old reaches her hand in a boiling pot of water to fish something out that she dropped and experiences the full burn but no pain. 
Or she chops up an apple and she slices her thumb and she bleeds everywhere, but there's no pain, right? Pain is a gift of God. Pain says there's something wrong, there's something hurting, there's something broken. And every time there's pain, it's an invitation to say, God, what are you doing here? God saves by allowing us to feel pain of our rebellion. Here's the second thing, is that God saves by crushing those who hurt his people. There's violence to this and there's difficulty to this, but make no mistake, Eglon and Sisera had it coming. They had it coming. They were oppressing the people of God, roughly, brutally. It says in chapter four, verse three, he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. It says in chapter five, verse 30, that one of the practices of Sisera was that after he would plunder a place, he would always bring home a few young virgins that he, virgins that he could have his way with. This is a cruel person. This is an ungodly person. This is a pain-causing person. And when you hurt God's people, God gets mad. And he will crush those who hurt his people if they don't repent and find their way to Jesus. God isn't this soft, wimpy, oh, just do what you want, it's okay. That's not God. I heard this really funny story about Teddy Roosevelt. You know, he's a president. And when he was in college at Harvard, he taught a Sunday school class. And this kid was late to a Sunday school class. He said, hey, what happened? Where were you? And he said, well, this kid was picking on my sister and he, he was hurting her. And so I punched him. And it, I'm late. And he said, well, that's great. And he pulled out a dollar. He said, way to go. <laughs> Have a dollar. And uh, he was asked to no longer teach in the Sunday school. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I guess I get why they would ask him not to. But I also, don't you think like the kid protected his sister? That was the right thing to do. And you go, wow, but shouldn't we forgive? I mean, should we be like taking up our tent pegs and cubit swords and, or guns? Or should, I mean, should we be like rising up to rid the world of evildoers? Right? We see people around the world doing that, don't we? Let's get rid of them. Is that what we should do? Or, or should we, as Jesus said, pray for our enemies, love our enemies, forgive our enemies? Well, yes, of course that's what we should do. But don't you understand that our ability to forgive our enemies, our ability to love our enemies depends on believing that God will take care of what's right in the end, right? You say, I don't need to repay because vengeance is God's. So I'll love. But listen, if you say, well, I'll, I have to forgive and God isn't going to do vengeance, well, that doesn't work. Because if you go, God's not going to do anything about this, then I'm going to. Your only hope to forgive is to believe that there's a God who will punish evil. And he did punish it on the cross for anyone who will trust in Christ. They can have forgiveness. They can have their sins paid for by Jesus. But if they don't repent, if they don't turn, God will crush those who hurt his people. Here's the third thing we see from this story is that God saves in funny and gritty ways. I mean, I know we're at church, so we're supposed to be serious. And most of us, you know, look a little nicer than we look at other points in the week. And at least I do. <laughs> kind of a slob the rest of the week. But. but this story, isn't it funny? 
But if you just are allowed to be on, like every, like both services, there have been kids sitting up in this front part and they laugh harder than any of the rest of you because kids get that it's funny. And I think if you're an Israelite reading this, you're like, yeah, bad guy, you got it. Your belly was so big, we couldn't even get the sword out. (laughs) And then poop came out. And like, I mean, it's just, it's funny. And it's gritty. And it's like, it's like all this tangible, earthy stuff, right? And I think sometimes we go, oh, God's up there. And it's, you know, it's this distant, pious, spiritual, whatever. I think actually this is rather pious. To say, look at how God does it. God gets engaged in our messy, dirty, real world and he brings salvation there. And he has, a, he, he has an ability to go, hey, laugh about how great it is that I'm your deliverer. Enjoy it. Have a laugh at Eglon's expense. It's funny. Here's what uh, Dale Ralph Davis says. He's a commentator that I've really appreciated on this book. He says, Life seems to be a mass of twisted coat hangers and disconnected doorknobs. And the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out somewhere on the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty with the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is the God who delights to deliver his people, even in their messes, and likes to make them laugh again. He's the God who allows weeping to endure for a night, but sees that joy comes in the morning. This God is getting involved in the messy stuff. He's getting involved in the, in the difficulty. And listen, the place where we need saving is often the places that that we feel ashamed to bring to God because it's dirty. Or the pain that we feel and we feel ashamed to actually tell God how we actually feel, right? It's amazing. We, we, I think this should invite us to feel the freedom to be honest with God. God, I can be honest with you. You know how things really are. You know the grit. You know the humor. I don't have to become this sanctimonious other th- person that I'm not. I can be, I can be who, who I am before you. Right? That's what the Psalms are. Right? The Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God. And yet we feel very uncomfortable praying like the Psalms pray. There's this old movie, The Apostle. Robert Duvall was in it. It wasn't a Christian movie. And I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I, I, I think I watched it. I don't know if I was a Christian even when I saw it, but I remember this one scene where he is up in the, in the second story of his mom's house and he's ranting at guys going, I love you, Lord, I love you, but I'm mad at you. I love you, but I'm mad at you. And the neighbor calls and says, will you get him under control? He's, he's ranting and raving. And she said, listen, ever since he was a young kid, he's always talked to God, but sometimes he yells at him. <laughs> when was the last time you yelled at God? And get this, I'm not saying we should get like we're better than God and we know how to run the world. We don't need that spirit. We don't need more of that. That's everyone did what's right in their own eyes. But when was the last time that you were so convinced that God was for you and you were so convinced that he was a big boy who knew your real gritty life that you could just let him have it? I don't like this. When are you gonna do something about this, God? Do, Do you ever feel like you have the freedom to do that? We should. 
I think this passage also invites us to just feel the freedom to not take ourselves so seriously. This is funny. And, and we're so serious. We gotta be everything to everyone. We gotta know, we gotta do, we gotta, you know, we gotta have our whole thing. To, and this says, no, you're, you're human. One of my favorite stories, this is from a book called Sensing Jesus by Zach Eswine. He was a, a seminary professor and he had a pastor in his life who, he was a, kind of a, this pastor was a mentor figure. And this pastor, under all this stress and all this weight of I gotta do everything and I gotta be everything and I gotta meet all these demands, this pastor took his own life. And in the book, Eswine talks about how he wished that his friend just would have just known, like, you're, it's, you're just human. It's okay. You're not supposed to be God. You're not supposed to know it all. You're not supposed to be it all. You're not supposed to do it all. Just, just embrace the limits of your being human. He wished he could have felt that. And so, a few weeks later, he had an opportunity at the seminary he taught at to give a short address to all the graduating seminarians, all these seminarians who are going to go off into the world and be pastors and be theologians and be very serious about God. And he, they said, hey, will you say a few words to like send these guys off, give them some, some word of wisdom that they need as they head into this life of influence? And he stood up and he said, gentlemen, Jonathan Edwards the great American theologian and preacher farted. I figured we've already talked about dung. This is bodily function Sunday at Gateway. Jonathan Edwards farted. Whoever your hero is, they fart. Whoever the perfect mommy blogger that has all her Pinterest life together, and if you could just you know, make your hot dogs look like beavers, you'd be so happy too. Or... You know what she does. And so let this just invite us to not take ourselves so seriously. Say, God, you, you save. You're in charge. I can be honest with you. I don't have to be so uptight. I'm gonna take God seriously. I mean, I think this passage invites us to take him seriously, right? He's the savior. He's the one doing it. But to say, I, God, you're funny. I think heaven will be a blast because God will be there. There's no one in the world happier than God. Here's the fourth thing to see. God saves through unlikely deliverers. It's one of the things this whole book is pointing to is the unlikely deliverers. All the deliverers of the book of Judges are flawed. They all have problems. They all have foibles. They all have things that we wouldn't necessarily admire or aspire to be. God saves through a, a lefty. Well, that's kind of a weird thing in that culture. He saves through a woman prophet. There aren't many of them. He saves through this foreign woman jail who's going to drive the tent peg. And he's going to use Gideon, and he's going to use Samson, and he's going to use all these broken, unlikely deliverers. Why? To point to another unlikely deliverer, but one who's not broken, Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is an unlikely deliverer, right? When he shows up, the people go, Nazareth, <laughs> what could come from there? When he's on the cross, actually delivering the world, he's hanging there paying for sins for whoever would trust in him. He's doing the deliverance. And while he does it, the people go, oh, if you're the son of God, bring yourself down from there. Come on. 
This isn't how, this isn't how a deliverer acts. You just got beaten, not delivered. No, not in God's economy. God saves through unlikely people. And yet in Jesus' case, he's the perfect one. So let me close by asking this question. And this is a question that I would love for you to talk about at lunch. I'd love you to talk about in your RCs as you meet this week. In what ways do you need saving? In what ways do you need saving? You need saved from your debt because it's just become out of control and you're stuck? You need saved from discouragement, depression, despair, and you feel like you're so alone, you need saved from that? You need saved from a bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship, and you go, God, I don't know if this is ever gonna work, save me from this. You need saved from confusion about what to do and what's wise and what's the best decision and what, what do our kids need? You need saved from that. You need saved from alcohol or substance abuse. You need saved from your anger because it's not always out there but it's lingering under the surface and sometimes it explodes and it really does damage. You go, God, I need to be saved from that. You need saved from your sin. Not just your sins, the little things you do, but, but the, the nature of your heart that is bent toward disregarding God. You need saved from that? This passage, this book is an invitation for the people of God to say, God, save me. God, help me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the way you save I thank you for the kind of deliverance that you bring, how it's funny and gritty and real, how it comes even through imperfect people. God, we even thank you for the pain that you'll allow our lives to have to wake us up and to be a megaphone that gets our attention. Father, we pray that you'd save us in the areas where we need it. I pray that our uh, minds would be and our hearts would be open and attentive to the ways we need saving. Would your spirit speak to us there and bring rescue, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.